question that was put to us a couple days back in regards to the Sabbath. Why don't Christians worship on Saturday? Uh, what's the difference? You know, we are gathering here on Sunday. We do gather on Sunday. Why don't we specifically gather on Saturday? Why don't we observe the Sabbath? So kind of just taking a brief little look into that this morning. And if you go to Genesis chapter 2, we'll start there. We'll just kind of do a few verses. Genesis chapter 2 in verse 1 states, Thus the heaven and the earth, the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God ended his work which he had made. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had made. And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because that in it he had rested from all his work which God created and made. So in, in the initial part of creation, God obviously finishes his work and he rests on the seventh day. And we know that God, being omniscient and omnipresent and omnipotent, is all-powerful. He does not need specific physical rest. And so it was a testimony to the completion of of the work of creation that he had done. And he reiterates that if you go to Exodus chapter 20, when he gives the commandments to the nation of Israel, Exodus chapter 20, and in verse 8, he states, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. In it shalt thou do, thou shalt not do any work, thou nor thy son, nor thy daughter, thy manservant, nor thy maidservant, nor thy cattle, nor thy stranger that is within thy gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that in them is, and rested the seventh day. Wherefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. So again, you see the reiteration there. God blessing that seventh day, a testimony of his rest after creation. But that's not only the only definition um, that God gives in regards to the Sabbath day in the Old Testament. You go to Deut Deuteronomy chapter 5. Deuteronomy chapter 5 this morning. As Moses is preaching again the commandments to the nation of Israel, reminding them specifically of the commandments. In Deuteronomy chapter 5, and in verse 12, it says, Keep the Sabbath day to sanctify it, as the Lord thy God hath commanded thee. Six days shalt thou labor, and do all thy work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. In it thou shalt do not do any work, thou nor thy son, nor thy daughter, nor thy manservant, nor thy maidservant, nor thine ox, nor thine ass, nor any of thy cattle. Nor thy stranger that is within thy gates, that thy manservant and thy maidservant may rest, as well as thou. And remember that thou wast a servant in the land of Egypt, and that the Lord thy God brought thee out thence through a mighty hand and by a stretched out arm. Therefore the Lord thy God commandeth thee to keep the Sabbath day. So again, you see a twofold kind of definition here. God telling them to rest in reflection of his finishing of the creation of the, of the world. But not just that, but also a reminder of the fact that he had brought them out of the land of Egypt in which they were slaves. So it wasn't so much on the not doing work or the physical nature of it, but it was also the aspect of reflecting upon the work that God had done. Again, just as we talked about baptism last night, it's not the water, but it's the, it's the state of the heart, the reflection of what God gave as far as the intent. Now, if you'll go to the New Testament with me to Mark chapter 2, Mark chapter 2 in verse 27 We'll actually start reading in verse 23, Mark 2, 23. It says, And it came to pass that he went through the cornfields on the Sabbath day, speaking of Christ. And his disciples began as they went to pluck the ears of corn. And the Pharisees said unto him, Behold, why do they on the Sabbath day that which is not lawful? And he said unto them, Have ye never read what David did when he had need, and was in hungered, he and they that were with him? How he went into the house of God in the days of Abiathar, the high priest, and did eat the shewbread, which is not lawful to eat, but for the priests, 
and gave also to them which were with him. And he said unto them, The Sabbath was made for man, and not man for the Sabbath. Therefore the Son of Man is Lord also of the Sabbath. Now two things there. You know what? When, when Christ initially preached to the Pharisees, he said, You do transgress the commandment of God by the tradition of men. And what the Pharisees had done is they took the commandment that was given to man as a reflection on what God did in creation, but also what God did in the nation of Israel being taken from Egypt. They took it and they turned it into this judgmental kind of precept where they would look at people and if you if you pick something up or if you took your animal out of a ditch or if you did something in a, of a simple nature of just plucking uh, ear of corn to eat, that they would accuse you of, of disobeying the commandment of God. And that's just imp that's just not practical, as Christ was stating. They were missing the whole point of God's commandment. And so let's let's just go a little bit further here. Go to go with me to Colossians chapter two. Colossians chapter two. In verse 17. Colossians 2, 17 here. We've also been talking quite a bit specifically about the different economies, right? When God is speaking to the nation of Israel. God is speaking to us. you got to remember that the Sabbath commandment was given under the law. And as God tells us, the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Paul in Romans chapter 6 says, For ye are not under the law, right, but under grace. We live in this dispensation of grace. And in Colossians chapter 2, verse 16, it says, Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of an holy day or of the new moon or of the Sabbath days, which are a shadow of things to come. But the Amen. body is of Christ. And so as we talked about those specific things of creation and also the, the taking of Israel out of the land of Egypt, it was a testimony of completion, of rest, of reflection of those specific things. And all those things, if you think about the Old Testament, the feasts, the, um, the observance of specific meats that you weren't supposed to eat or not eat, they all pointed towards Christ. All those things pointed towards Christ. They were a shadow. But when you have Christ and you have the substance and Christ completed that work on Calvary, you no longer need to observe those things. They do not have value. The value is in the body of Christ. And so the only reason you would need to observe the Sabbath today would be if you were a Jew and you were still under the law. We know we're not under the law, but we're under grace. And so those observance, they just they don't make any kind of sense. They go against the gospel of Christ, for he is the substance of what those things were pointing for. And in final totality, just, just ending it here, you think about in the New Testament testimony, we have multiple explanations of that New Testament body of Christ meeting specifically on the first day of the week. And the biggest testimony is it says um, in the Gospels, in Matthew chapter 28, verse 1, or at the end of the um, Gospel ministry after Christ was resurrected, it says that the two women actually went to um, anoint the body of Jesus, went to go take the body of Jesus on that resurrection morning, and it was on the first day of the week after the Sabbath. So Christ was resurrected on the first day of the week. In, in multiple times, in um, for sake of time, Acts chapter 20, verse 7, 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 2, you see the New Testament body of Christ assembling specifically on the first day of the week, which we know to be uh, Sunday. Yes, uh, you know, I also want to add just a thought there of uh, giving God your first fruits as we think about Saturday being the end of the week. And there's that simple principle of putting God first. And also with our finances, uh, as we would give, to the to the ministry of the Lord, as we give we give to the cause of Christ, our time and our talent, our uh, life and our resources, all of those things being first given to the Lord, uh, as we are to seek the Lord in the morning and uh, come before the Lord in the morning to prepare our heart for the day. Without Christ, all day long, um, you know. Whereas 
having that heart prepared with Christ for whatever comes your your way that day. And so uh, Sunday being the first day of the week it really is a, is a picture of the resurrection. It's a picture of walking in newness of life. It's a picture of just a, a beautiful thought of each week and each uh, each week of the month walking with the Lord and putting Him uh, first and, and, and above everything else. And I think that's very important. It's really sad. You see a lot of Christians. Uh, I think that there's definitely, I know there's definitely a principle that carries over a practical truth of that holiness of the Sabbath in a sense of worshiping God and resting with God and communing with God and fellowshipping with God, um, where that it does follow over in the New Testament on the day of the Lord concerning Sunday. Um, and so if you're a child of God and, you know, what is idolatry? Idolatry is anything that we put above a, a holy and a just God that we would worship. So a lot of people go to a ball game on Sunday before going to the Word of God before going to church. Uh, you know, there's those principles that overlap uh, from the Old Testament to the New Testament. And most definitely, I think we have to take those into consideration. Really brings me to our next point. I wasn't going to go to this point, but it goes hand in hand with what uh, Pastor Tyler has just covered. And it is, uh, why did God rest on the seventh day? And uh, I think it's very important just to cover right now because it's going to add to what's already been said. And so why, why did God rest on the, on the seventh day? And I want to say, first of all, that He did rest. He did rest on the seventh day. And the Bible speaks about it in the book of Genesis as well as the book of Hebrews. So first of all, we'll go to the book of Hebrews chapter 4. And uh, the Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 4 from verse 1 through about verse 11. And again, as we know the Bible rightly divided, the Scripture is given to us historically, it's given to us practically, and it's also given to us prophetically. Much of what we read in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, Jude, Revelation, the book of Hebrews, 1st and 2nd Peter, uh, even Philemon, uh, a lot of these passages, they definitely fit in a tribulational setting, uh, the book of James as well. And so Hebrews is one of those that you can pull out truths that definitely uh, apply to the saint of God going through that tribulational period. But here's a practical note in the thought of resting. He says in verse 1, Let us therefore fear, lest a promise being lifted Left of uh, left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. For unto us was the gospel preached, as well as unto them. But the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. For we which have believed do enter into rest, as he said, as I have sworn in my wrath. If they shall enter into my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he spake in a certain place of the seventh day on this wise, and God did rest the seventh day from all his works. And in this place again, if they shall enter into my rest, seeing therefore it remaineth that some must enter therein. And they to whom it was first preached entered not in because of unbelief. Again, he limited a certain day, saying in David, Today, after so long a time, as it is said today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts. For if Jesus had given them rest, then would he not afterward have spoken of another day? There remaineth therefore a rest, notice this, to the people of God. And then if you go down to verse 11, it says, Let us labor, therefore, 
to enter into the rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. And so that thought of entering into the rest is that saint of God working through the tribulational period, but that hope of resting eternally. I think there's a principle there as well. Uh, But I pull that out just to say, as the Bible says in verse number 4, it says that God did rest the seventh day. So it is an accurate statement. Did God rest? Yes, He did rest. Uh, He rested on the seventh day. So look back in the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 2. And we'll look at verse 1 and verse 3, a passage that Pastor Tyler has already read. And uh, I think chronologically or systematically, you have to look at the days. The seventh day he rested. Uh, What did he create on the sixth day? The Bible tells us that on the sixth day that he created, let us make man in our image. It's unique that on the sixth day, man, imperfection was created. On the seventh day, God took time to rest from his work. But in that rest, there was a relationship of an imperfect uh, futuristic being, man, as he would fall into sin, God knowing this, and as God establishing this Sabbath day in light of the sinful nature of man needing a intimate relationship, needing a time of rest with God, communion with God, fellowship with God in the hustle and bustle of life. And so just to review, the Bible says in Genesis chapter 3, uh, excuse me, Genesis chapter 2, he says down in verse 1 through verse 3, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God ended His work which He had made, and He rested on the seventh day from all His work which He had made. God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it. Again, separating it, setting it apart. And it was all in light of that sixth day of what He made on the sixth day. Let us make man in our image. And uh, why, why did God rest on the seventh day? Well, He rested in uh, not for His benefit, but for our benefit, uh, he rested that we might understand that as humanity has progressed, and as time has changed, there's still this continual need that we need to spend time with God. Uh, let me just remind you of the omnipotence of God. God is all powerful. God needeth not to slumber nor to rest. Look in Psalms chapter 121. Psalms 121. And he says down in verse 4, Behold, he that keepeth Israel shall never slumber nor sleep. God doesn't need to rest in the sense that we need to rest of sleeping and resting and slumbering to revitalize and rejuvenate our body. But He did this in a sense of worship that man needed with God. Man needed that intimate relationship with God. Let me remind you of another passage talking about His omnipotence uh, in in the book of Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, we'll look down at verse number 20. And uh, I know it's a verse that we kind of read through, but it's definitely a verse that talks about His eternal power. The Bible says, For the invisible things of Him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power. God is not an old man with gray hair sitting upon a throne. He does not age. He created time in the beginning that implementing in that uh, origin of time and yet the nature of God and the function of God and the ability of God and the power of God although He has power to create and to make and through His example we see Him resting it was not needed for His own personal benefit. Also you can go to the book of Jeremiah chapter 
32 and verse 17, it speaks about God not needing to rest for His own personal benefit uh, because He is all-powerful. Look at Colossians. Colossians chapter 2. And we'll look down in verse 16 and in verse 17. I hope and pray that these uh, questions, these answers are meaty, weighty, good. I know they're definitely truthful, but I pray that you would take the time to go through the Scriptures with us and to glean from all of these things. He says in Colossians chapter 2, and if you will, the Bible says in verse number 1, it says, For I would that ye knew what great conflict I have for you and for them at Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts might be comforted, being knit together with love unto all riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God and of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Let me just remind you that we want to understand God. That's what the Bible says, the assurance of understanding, the full assurance of understanding. God is uh, composed of, of all of these abilities. Uh, in Him are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He doesn't need to rest. He doesn't need to slumber. And He tells us uh, in Colossians chapter 2, verse 16 and verse 17, Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of an holy day, as Pastor Tyler's already, already read, or of the new moon, or of the Sabbath days, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. You know, again, uh, did he need to rest for his own benefit? Absolutely not. But uh, as we think about the dispensation of grace that we're living in, we think now that we have it uh, worked out. So on the eighth day of our revival, we have some technicality. But uh, the devil, he definitely does not want and will that any of this to go forth. God uh, he is he is able and so uh, thank you so much for uh, continuing to stay with us so uh, just to kind of conclude what we were talking about on the seventh day God did rest but it was not in reflection to his own inability or his own need to sustain life or to uh, continue in his eternal realm it was not because he physically needed nor does he grow old God is again setting outside of time uh, he orchestrated originated and brought into existence time. It's all for the benefit of mankind. You know, as people, we, with time, it governs our life. It governs every aspect of life. We have calendars, days, weekly events, years, uh, special activities, birthdays, our age, all of these things governed by time. But with God, uh, time has no effect on Him. So with that thought of the eternal realm versus this uh, tangible physical realm we live in, it's a true reflection that, once again, he rested as an example uh, for us in our need to seek him and for us in our need to talk and fellowship with him. And just as much as they needed rest on the Sabbath in the Old Testament, we need rest uh, in the New Testament on the first day of the week. And again, why do we come to church on Sunday? Because it's a picture of the resurrection and we thank God. In that newness of life, we serve the Lord the beginning of the week, pressing forward the first day uh, as we enter into this week of labor that we're going to put Christ first. We want to acknowledge Christ first above anyone or anything else. And uh, hopefully that's a good explanation of these things. Pastor. All right. I guess we'll go to the uh, next question there that we had come in. 
Um, can I lose my salvation? Can I lose my salvation? That would be what we want to say. Yes. Can I lose my salvation? And um, so we'll just dive right into this really quick. Uh, if you go to Hebrews chapter 10, we read it the other night. Uh, Hebrews chapter 10, and again, to reiterate what Pastor said, you got to be, certain books uh, pertain to specific things, uh, specific time periods, as far as who, who is God speaking to you, uh, what is the um, time period that it's in, is it, is it under the law, is it under grace? And so you definitely have to distinguish between the two. But Hebrews uh, chapter 10 gives us a very um, good definition of the work of Christ as far as his priestly office. And so um, just speaking this morning on can you lose your salvation? We'll start reading in Hebrews chapter 10 here. It says, For the law having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect. So you think about the law in the Old Testament, those sacrifices that they made, it was for temporary atonement. It could never fully take away their sin. Verse 2, For then would they not have ceased to be offered, because that the worshippers, once purged, should have had no more conscience of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a remembrance, again, made of sins every year. Again, I think about us being saved by grace. God said he's removed our sin as far as the east is from the west. There's no more remembrance of our sin. But again, under that law, that every time that they would sacrifice um, that, that goat or that lamb, there was a remembrance of the sin that was being paid for. Verse 5, Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, saith he, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldst not, but a body hast thou prepared me. Christ came in the flesh. The word became flesh. He came in the body. Verse 6, in burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, thou hast had no pleasure. Speaking of God the Father, he had no pleasure in those things. They were just temporary. But you remember when Jesus was on the cross, the Bible says that it pleased the Lord to bruise him. It pleased him. Verse 7 says, then said I, lo, I come in the volume of the book. It is written of me to do thy will, O God. Above when he said, Sacrifice and offering and burnt offerings and offering for sin, thou wouldst not, neither had pleasure therein, which are offered by the law. Then said he, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first, that he may establish the second. By the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest standing daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins, can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins, that was his body, forever, sat down on the right hand of God, from henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified, whereof the Holy Ghost also is a witness to us. So you think about that aspect, right? Those Old Testament sacrifices could never fully take away sin from mankind. But Jesus Christ's body, once for all, took away sins forever to those who would accept him as their personal savior. And you think about that earthly priest. That earthly priest has to die. He has to die. He's a man just like you are. You think about Catholic priests today. They're a man just as you are. But Jesus Christ, since he lives forever, sitting at the right hand of God, has an unchangeable priesthood. He has the ability not just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from unrighteousness initially at salvation, but it's a continual eternal cleansing of our sin he preserves us blameless until the day of redemption to give you um just uh, two more verses here go with me to ephesians ephesians chapter one and we'll start reading in verse three if or 13 excuse me ephesians chapter one verse 13 the bible tells us in whom ye also trusted after that ye heard the word of truth the gospel of your salvation in whom also after that ye believed ye were sealed 
with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession, unto the praise of his glory. You remember we talked the other night about what is the definition of earnest? It's another word for a down payment. When you get saved and you believe the word of truth, again, there's no baptism in that verse. You get saved. You're sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. It's a seal, and God puts a down payment on you, and that down payment is the Holy Spirit of God that comes inside of you, and it seals you. It's an operation made without hands, and it said that you're sealed until the day of redemption. Ephesians 4, um, Pastor just read it a minute ago. It says, And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed until the day of redemption. 1 Corinthians says, For ye are bought with a price, therefore glorify your glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God. When you get saved, God owns you. He puts a down payment on you, and he's coming back to take you at the day of redemption. And so you can't lose your salvation. The only reason people would think this is to think that we obtain our salvation by our own works. But I, you just don't find that in Scripture and in the New Testament dispensation of grace. The Bible says, Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy. He saved us, right? For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. When you stand before Jesus Christ, you're, you're not going to be able to have any kind of negotiation of your righteousness because it wasn't your good works that saved you. It was the work of Jesus on Calvary. Again, the only reason that somebody could think that you could possibly lose your salvation is to mismanage the economies that God speaks to us in Scripture. Right. We understand talking about that tribulation period where you'll have to endure till the end to be saved. We don't live there nowadays. We're, we're saved by the gospel of Jesus Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection. Pastor? I, I do want to add to uh, what Pastor Tyler was talking about concerning the economies. In fact, if you go to the Old Testament concerning the faith of a believer, how it was a, it, it was achieved, it was achieved through uh, the, the action of obedience summed up with their faith. Abraham was saved through faith, uh, excuse me, Abraham was saved by faith, whereas we are saved, the Bible tells us in the book of Romans, uh, through faith. Ephesians tells us, for by grace they say through faith. So there's a difference, by faith versus through faith. And by faith in the Old Testament is seen in the book of Leviticus, and it makes reference to uh, the priest um, making the atonement uh, for, the, for the sins. He says in Leviticus chapter 4, verse 20, and he shall do with the bullock as he did with the bullock for a sin offering. So shall he do with this. And the priest shall make an atonement for them, and it shall be forgiven them. The Old Testament saint of God received forgiveness when that priest, in action of obedience through faith, or excuse me, in action of obedience by faith, brought the atonement, the sin offering, for that Christian. But the thing that I want to point out to you, that Old Testament say, saint of God was not uh, placed in the heavenly realm until the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you look in Luke chapter 16, the Bible talks about paradise, uh, Abraham's bosom, paradise versus hell. And there was a great gulf fixed. The Old Testament saint of God receiving forgiveness through the atonement action of by faith in obedience of this sin offering, and as Hebrews tells us, that it's not fully uh, done through the goat, uh, blood of goats and heifers and, and, and so forth and so on. It's not through a lamb, a physical animal, uh, but until the lamb Jesus Christ. As John the Baptist said, 
uh, to the Lord Jesus. Behold the Lamb of God, which what? Taketh away the sins of the world. So that Old Testament saint was forgiven, and yet in that forgiveness, they didn't make it to heaven. They made it to Abraham's bosom. And they were able to see the torment of those Old Testament sinners that rejected uh, the faith of uh, the law. And uh, uh, when Christ died, the Bible says that he went down to, to, to hell and he took the keys of death, hell, and the grave. And the Bible tells us in the book of Ephesians that he brought those saints of God back in uh, to the very throne in the heavenlies. And they're uh, just rejoicing. And that's where those Old Testament saints are today. Hell's still a real place, still filled with people, and it's growing daily. Uh, but those Old Testament saints no longer in Abraham's bosom because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. And uh, it's very important. You know, it's so very important. People that don't know the Bible rightly divided to understand these different economies and to put the Scripture in their proper to uh, context. Because if you don't, you come up with multiple things such as losing your salvation, multiple things such as uh, salvation according to baptism and some kind of work or uh, somehow we're supposed to endure to the end. Or if I take a... A tattoo with the mark of the beast, 666, on my forehead, the dispensation of grace, I'm going to automatically die uh, and go to hell. Those things, um, man, to know the Bible and to know it rightly and divided is so very, so very important. Uh, this will probably be the last question that we really have time for. And to kind of preface this question, I want to say that this is definitely one of the most uh, uh, hottest topics, one of the hottest topics amongst Christianity. Uh, today and it is is it wrong for women to preach and or pastor and I want to say again the authority that we stand upon is the word of God this is not my thought this is not my perspective and this is no spirit of apology this is me uh, with a spirit of being transparent and being honest with you uh, I love my wife I thank God for the women in my life my mother my grandmother I thank the Lord for my mother-in-law godly women in our church there's a special ministry and a place uh, my wife has been we've been married for almost 15 years we have four children she is a wonderful godly lady and um you know kind of like that old humorous thought of preaching at home uh my mother has done her part in that my wife has done her part in that as being a godly mother and teaching and preaching in a sense of her home to her children but when it comes to the bible of our this new testament organism that we have the church and uh, the authority of God's Word speaks about leadership in the proper context and the proper place. Uh, let me just say that there's an overgrowth of shifting social standards in our society, meaning that roles are changing, roles are reversed. In fact, it's really not the parents that are leading the children anymore. It's children that are leading parents. It's not that the husband is the head of the home. Now we see that this is... Uh, Reversed, and in many cases, women trying to usurp the authority over the rightful role that's been given by God to man. And so, we're going to discuss all of those things. There's two key components that you really need to understand about this thought can women preach, or is it wrong for women to pastor? Uh, and those two thoughts are found in the scripture concerning the husband of one wife and also the thought of ruling his house, his family, his home well that he might be able to rule and lead the house of God. Now, a lot of people have a problem with that word rule, but I don't because it's a King James Bible word and it's found in the word of God. And it's not a spirit of dictatorship. It's a spirit of uh, organization. It's a spirit of measurement. It's a spirit of knowing 
uh, how to uh, function and to rule. Uh, a ruler is a tool of measurement. It is a standard that we are to hold by. And that's what that word rule means as we go to it in the book of whether 1 Peter chapter 5 or 1 Timothy chapter 3. Um, first of all, we want to go to 1 Timothy chapter 2. And uh, Paul really sets the standard both in 1 Timothy as well as in Titus chapter 1 of the roles of a bishop, i.e. a pastor, an elder. And uh, as we think about those titles, elder, bishop, pastor, overseer, shepherd, these titles are referring, and I cannot stress this enough, we've got so many non-denominational brothers and sisters out there that are not uh, they're not going to the Word of God to get their understanding of what these words mean. They're the same office. It's not that you have the office of a pastor, and then you have the office of a bishop, and then you have an office of an elder. And it leads me to another issue. These churches that have elder boards, elder board brand churches that is not found anywhere in the Scripture. Uh, you have... In Acts chapter 20, the oversight is given to the pastor. That doesn't mean that he is dictating. That doesn't mean that he is not accountable. But that does mean, at the end of the day, the final uh, word that is given for direction is based upon the leadership of that man as he goes to the Bible. The only way, if I was under the authority of a pastor, and I am, even though I'm a pastor here at Solid Rock Baptist Church, I've been sent out by my home church, Whitfield Baptist Church, Dalton, Georgia, Pastor Wayne Cofield. And if I was preaching false doctrine, they would revoke my uh, uh, authenticity, my uh, laying on of hands, and my sending forth from that church to be a pastor. They would revoke that. My ordination certificate would mean nothing. But as I submit to the Word of God, and that leadership of still being under that church in a sense... Um, I would submit to you that the only way that I would leave a church uh, concerning these issues is if the pastor was in his in his leadership not submitting to the authority of the word of, uh, to the authority of the word of God, and so these are key issues. It, it's not a elder ran church. It's not an elder board church. It's not a board church ran uh, church ministry. It is that the pastor is to give the oversight to lead the church and that authority falls upon God's Word. I'm not the authority of Solid Rock Baptist Church. God's Word is. And that keeps me in line, that keeps you in line, that keeps each and every person in line because God's Word is settled in heaven and we have that clear record of it. Uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2, the Bible says in verse 11 through verse 15, let the woman learn in silence with all subjection. But I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. Why? Verse 13 and verse 14 speaks of the reasons. For Adam was first formed, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. Eve fell into transgression because she was deceived. Adam willfully sinned. Verse 15, notwithstanding, she shall be saved in childbearing. Her responsibility is to raise the children, to give birth. And in that uh, agonizing and pain and turmoil of childbirth, that she is to bring her children in the admonition and the nurture of, of the Lord. 
if they continue in faith and charity and holiness with sobriety. That's what the Bible says. Let me just back up and, and, and share with you in verse number 9. It says, in like manner also that the woman adorn themselves, the women adorn themselves or arrange themselves in modest apparel. In modest apparel. Um, as the Bible says that nature itself testifies that it's a sin for man to let have long hair. A lot of times what you find with these uh, tele-evangelistic preachers that are women, these female pastors, their voices have been altered. They sound like men. Uh, they are uh, presenting themselves in a masculine form. Uh, and, and most definitely they are not falling under the category of sub submitting themselves to the Word of God because they are usurping authority over the man. It says, In like manner also the woman adorned themselves in modest apparel with shamefacedness and sobriety, not with broidered hair or gold or pearls or costly array, but which becometh women professing godliness with good works. And that good works is that the woman is to learn it in silence. She's not to usurp authority of the man, to take uh, the leadership of the man. And then he goes into uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3. And he says in verse 1, this is a true saying, if a man desire the office of a bishop, not a woman. He doesn't talk about a woman's desire. You may be a female and you and your personality is a little more domineering or maybe you like to lead or maybe you like to uh, have an element of control in things or maybe you want to uh, stand uh, in the spotlight and speak or teach or something of that nature. The Bible says that this role, this office of a bishop has been given to a man, if a man desire the office of a bishop. Let me say this, just because a man has a desire to be a pastor does not mean that he's qualified to be a pastor. It's a good thing to have that desire, but as the Bible goes forth in these verses, he gives us the credentials that a man of God should have in his lifestyle, in his home, of being a godly pastor. He says in verse number 2, a bishop then must be blameless. The husband of one wife. If a woman is a pastor or a preacher uh, and, and, and she's out there and she's teaching the Word of God, number one, she's not submitted herself to the authority of God's Word in the sense that she's not obeying it. She's usurped herself over the authority of the man. She also is not married to uh, uh, a woman. And if she's married to a woman, then that causes reflection upon an immoral uh, sin such as sodomy and homosexuality and lesbianism. And so there's a whole other lifestyle that has to be addressed. The Bible says the husband of one wife. Notice he goes on down. He says, um, not given, verse 3, not given to wine, no striker, not greedy, a filthy lucre, but patient, not a brawler, not covetous. One that ruleth well his own house, having his children in subjection, with gravity. For if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? He uses that word rule there in essence to give uh, leadership. If you can't control your home and your children, and if your wife is not in submission, as the Bible says, to the authority of her husband, then how can that role be given and fulfilled for the office of a bishop? He goes on down and he says, uh, even in regards to a deacon, I've heard churches that have deacons and deaconesses. 
Where do you find that in the Bible? You, you don't. You don't find that in the Bible. Well, uh, a deacon means servant. It's not just talking about a definition of what a deacon is. Because if you will, at that note, every child of God is to be a servant or to serve tables or to serve one another. But this is an office. There's only two offices that we find in the Bible, in the New Testament, for the local church. And that is the bishop and that is the deacon. And he speaks about the wife of the the bishop. He speaks about the wife of uh, the deacon. He says in verse 8, Likewise must the deacons be grave, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, uh, not greedy of filthy lucre, holding the mystery of faith in a pure conscience. And let these also first be proved. Let them that use the office of a deacon, being found blameless, even so must their wives be grave, not slanderers, sober, faithful in all things. Let the deacons be the husband of one wife, ruling their children in their own houses well. For they that have used the office of a deacon well purchased to themselves a good degree and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. Well, pastor, this is sexist. No, it's Bible. And God has these things uh, in line because of the nature of life and the roles that should be played. Women are to be feminine. Men are to be masculine. Those roles have been reversed in our society. And it definitely speaks about leadership to all these things. Let me give you another passage. Titus chapter 1. For this cause, verse 5, For this cause, I left thee in Crete, that thou shouldest set in order the things that are wanting, to ordain elders in every city, as I had appointed thee. If any be blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of riot or unruly, for a bishop must be blameless, the stewards of God, not self-willed, not soon angry, not given to wine, no striker, not given to filthy lucre, but a lover of hospitality, a lover of good men, sober, just, holy, temperate, holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convince the gainsayers. Now let me just stop here and say this. If you go to a church and you have a pastor that is a female, you don't have a pastor at all. You have a female speaker. You have a uh, possibly a Christian lady that loves the Bible and she feels adequate to step into this role of leadership. But you do not have a pastor because in order to be a pastor, i.e. a bishop, i.e. an overseer, i.e. the shepherd, i.e. Uh, 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 the, the, the elder, you have to have a man. You have to have a man. The husband of one wife. Well, does that mean that Every pastor is to be married? No, because we understand Paul wasn't married. And Paul started churches. But the focus is on that gender and the ability of that gender. Men don't bear children. We don't have children. That's the responsibility given to the woman. As man was made first and Eve fell into transgression, willfully sinning. Let me give you a few things to think about. I wrote down two famous female pastor preachers. Uh, these are ladies that worldwide they're known. And, and I want to bring some of these thoughts just to your attention. Uh, the first one is Paula White. or uh, Paula White. She, she is uh, Paula White Kane. That's her name, but she's known 
as uh, Paula White. She was born April the 20th, 1966. Prior to May 2019, she was senior pastor of New Destiny Christian Center in Apopoca, Florida, a non-denominational megachurch. Today, she hosts a TV show entitled Paula White Today. Paula White becomes chair of an evangelical advisor, uh, advisory board. In Donald Trump's administration, she delivered the invocation of his inauguration on January the 20th, 2017. Why am I saying these things? I'm saying these things because this doctrine has been neglected on numbers and numbers and numbers of levels. And it's really sad. Let me give you another lady uh, to think about, Joyce Myers. Um, Joyce Myers, she was born June the 4th, 1943. Uh, she is an American charismatic Christian author and speaker and president of Joyce Myers Ministries. Now think about this. Joyce Myers owns several homes travels around the world in a private jet. I have nothing against people owning homes or even a jet, but I do have a problem with manipulating the Bible for their own personal gain. Think about this. In November 2003, the St. Louis Post-Dispatch published a four-part special report detailing Joyce Meyer's $10 million corporate jet her husband owning a $107,000 silver gray Mercedes sedan, her $2 million home and houses worth another $2 million for her children, and, 20 mil and a $20 million headquarters for her ministries. All of this furnished with $5.7 million worth of furniture, artwork, glassware, etc., etc. Now, I don't know about you, but the last time I looked, the love of money is the root of what? All evil. And I'm just saying that to say this. We're living in the last days. Men don't adhere and submit to the Word of God. They reject the largest of doctrines. Or if you will, in our thinking, maybe doctrines that are not that big of a deal. They are major, major doctrines. Roles are changed. Offices now are corrupt and polluted and changed. Anyone and everyone. And why am I saying this? I'm saying this just to say once again, as we think about major headline topics such as the LGBT community even coming in and holding offices, that's the next step that we are seeing in religious organizations and churches, parachurch ministries across the world because we are not holding to the, we, they are not holding to the doctrines of God's word. And uh, it's just really, really sad. Pastor Tyler, do you have anything to add there? I mean, it's just, you think about the verses that say we're not those who deceitfully corrupt the Word of God, and, and you can see that nowadays in so many different different avenues, uh, with so many different churches, uh, like pastors mentioned, women preachers, uh, you have just churches that are preaching false doctrine, you have the prosperity gospel, so many things that are going on with religion nowadays, and it's just what an encouragement, I'm thankful to be part of a church that preaches the Bible, uh, that preaches truth, and man, I just, I wouldn't even waste, I mean, what's the point? I wouldn't waste my time going to places um, right. where, I mean, it's just like you're going to have the Bible preached to you, but you're not even adhering to the things of the Bible. That's right. And there's so many even contemporary churches where it's like people flock to these, I mean, thousands of people flock to these churches, and they hear these messages, but it's just like, where's the substance? You know, these people go away not even, not even understanding what the gospel is. 
not even ever heard the fact that they're a sinner and they're going to die and go to hell. And it's just what a terrible, terrible thing um, to just misuse that. And so I would really encourage you. And I understand that not everybody that goes to those churches is, you know, there's a lot of people that are just just blind to it because they've never been exposed to it. But that's why it's our responsibility uh, to be faithful ministers of the word. And I would just encourage you with that. That was was really good. Amen. Well, uh, I think that's all of our time this morning. And we want to encourage you to tune back in at 6 o'clock here at Solid Rock Baptist Church. Again, thank you so much for visiting. If you're a part of our church family, we want to encourage you to keep up with your tithes and offerings. And if you're also viewing and you're not a part of our uh, church membership and you'd like to uh, give an offering to help sustain this ministry, we would appreciate it greatly. In this time of uh, dysfunction and uh, chaos and, and confusion, we definitely need your support. You could make that check out at Solid Rock Baptist Church, and you could send it to P.O. Box 406, Bath, Michigan, 488. Again, P.O. Box 406, Bath, Michigan, 48808. Again, make it out to Solid Rock Baptist Church in a note of tithe, offering, building, missions fund, uh, or if you'd like to uh, designate it to something else. We also have a beautiful ministry, uh, a new ministry in our church of raising money to help Christian families who are considering adopting uh, to put in their hands um, uh, some funds to help them with all of those specifics. And so if you would like to give to that, that's available as well. You can make a note of that also. If you're looking for a good home church, please follow me. Come visit with us. We'd love to pray with you, get to know you, and help you. Our church will be meeting, Lord willing, in the next uh, couple of weeks back at 1673 Hazlitt Road, Suite 36 and 37, Hazlitt, Michigan, 48840. And again, thank you for tuning in. God bless you. and May your Sunday be a great day. Pastor Tyler, will you dismiss us in the word prayer? Dear Jesus, thank you for today, and thank you for your word. Uh, thank you, God, just for uh, your Holy Spirit. We just praise you for your salvation. Thank you, God, that we're sealed forever until that day of redemption, Lord. We just pray for our uh, people today, that we would just spend today as a day of rest, Lord, and just reflecting upon you and everything that you do for us. We praise you in all things, and pray that you bless the services tonight. In Jesus' name.